You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. Andrew and I are delighted to again be able to join today with Chris Murray, Dr. Chris Murray, He's the director of the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluations at the University of Washington in Seattle, where he's also chairman of the Department of Health Metric Sciences. Chris, welcome, and thanks so much for making time for us today. Uh, great to be here. So we want to start out, you recently published a short but powerful piece in The Lancet, January 19th. COVID-19 will continue, but the end of the pandemic is near. This has gotten a lot of attention for a short, such a short and powerful piece there, Chris. Congratulations. Why don't you walk us through what's the argument you're making? It's a fairly dramatic and powerful argument, but I want you to describe it for us. And then we can talk about what the reception has been and what some of the implications or questions that follow from this. Okay. And, and I felt compelled to write the piece just because I think it was this type of argument in parts is out there, but not in full. So the argument goes as follows. The Omicron wave is really different than previous waves of the pandemic because Omicron, you know, putting together the data that we've seen in South Africa, in the UK, in the US, elsewhere, is much less severe. And in fact, if we, it also likely has a very large fraction of infections that are asymptomatic or very mild. And that means that the percent of infections that end up in hospital is down 90 plus percent. The percent of infections that die is down maybe more than that, maybe 95 percent. Some of the analyses might be even 99 percent. But what it does mean is that there's this massive wave of Omicron infection across the world. And so by about March, 50, 60 percent of the world gets infected. And we come out the other end of Omicron with a enhanced population level immunity because so far what we've seen is that Omicron actually provides pretty decent protection against Delta. That's neutralizing antibody studies. We will have very few of the people we worry about the most, which is the unvaccinated and never infected. That group of people will be quite scarce. And so as we sort of move in the Northern Hemisphere into the summer months, we're going to have this period of very low transmission. Now, we in the Southern Hemisphere, also probably a, a period of low transmission, but it could be that in their winter, you might see some return of Omicron. Now, people always say, okay, you know, there's this big wave of, of a much less severe variant, but we must stay in crisis mode because there may be a new variant that comes along that is as transmissible as Omicron, but much more severe. And yes, a new variant will come along. We're, we're, we're pretty confident. It would be really remarkable if it didn't. But I think the world's in a different place because you've got so much more immunity from exposure to Omicron, from vaccination, and we have the advent of antivirals. So that as that scales up, we're going to shift into this period where you know Omicron really becomes another recurrent infectious disease that in magnitude is going to probably be like a bad flu season. Thus, I think the era of government, you know, major intervention into how people live their lives is coming to a close. 
And that's the idea that COVID's around, but, but the pandemic, that sense of crisis and crisis response will be over. So we were just talking a moment ago about the reception to this argument in China, where, of course, you have millions of people, you have 23 million people today in China under severe lockdown. And that's a, that's a big number, even by Chinese standards. And you have a population that's pretty worn out and pretty weary, angry, frustrated. It's disrupting people's lives. It's causing pain and suffering. It's disrupting economies, business sector. What's the reception been to your piece, which I understand did get translated, I'm sure, very rapidly into Chinese? Well, apparently, and this is all from colleagues of mine in China or from China here in the U.S., the piece is di disseminated incredibly widely. They tell me that's in the millions of views in China. And even, you know, elderly parents of uh, one of my postdocs from 20 years ago called her and said, do you know this guy? Because uh, they'd seen the piece on, on WeChat or, or some social media outlet. So there's been a lot of discussion of it. And as well, I'm told, in government. And I think it comes down to this anxiety that people in many people in China, not all, but many have of just being in a perpetual state where tomorrow you may get a very stringent lockdown with the zero COVID strategy. And the idea that there's light at the end of the tunnel, I think, is probably motivating the interest of the peace in, in China. So here in the United States, there's a considerable amount of anxiety, too. And for those of us who read your piece who really want, you know, the pandemic to come to a close or to subside, this was a welcome relief. But what about it makes you think that the government intervention is really going to need to or is really going to subside? I mean, it's hard for us to imagine that when government has been, you know, telling us to quarantine, keeping our kids out of school, you know, having us wear masks. You know, this is, you know, everybody in America wants to be a cowboy and do whatever they want, apparently. How, does you, how do you square your piece with that sort of feeling? Well, the other part that I didn't say at the beginning that's in the piece is that when we model Omicron, because it's so transmissible, the toolkit that we've used through the pandemic, which have had you know, enormous benefits, non-pharmaceutical interventions, you know, of course, vaccination, turns out uh, there's not much policy can do to stop the Omicron wave. It's just too transmissible. It's too fast. So like sitting here now, you know, you just even if we get 80 percent of Americans to mask up, it reduces infections a tiny amount and has it's just a blip. You can barely see it. So you've gone from a situation where the non-pharmaceutical interventions, the, the mask mandates, the social distancing mandates had an enormous effect on transmission and saved lives to one where it, it's sort of futile. And, you know, think about the other mainstay of public health response, which is testing contact tracing and quarantine, well, when 10% of the population and then their household contacts makes up 40% of the population on any given day during the peak of Omicron is positive or, or is a contact, that's just not feasible. You can't have you know, half the country in quarantine on any given day, even if you could find them. So you basically are in a different ballgame with something that's so transmissible. And I also think that as people see and get for, you know, constant confirmation, which is what's going on now, that it is less severe, it becomes really hard for government to justify the, this action. And we're seeing it in Europe. You know, you've got Spain, Italy, Israel, 
England, you know, really dropping most of the, the mandates. And I think that is the direction of travel for sure. So, Chris, are we at a certain talking about the United States and Europe for a moment? We'll get back to China in a minute. In, in the case of the U.S., it seems to me the risk is that people overreact to this prospect that things are changing dramatically and they become complacent and we lose a focus on the need for some continued capacity and popular acceptance of masking on a seasonal basis. We do need contact tracing and testing because there will be outbreaks, cluster outbreaks that need to be dealt with in a, in a focused and managed and targeted way. We're going to need better data systems. We're going to need testing more widely available and like. So it doesn't it doesn't fundamentally change the sorts of capacities that we think we need. You're just saying it's not going to be in an emergency context. It's going to be in something that's less than an emergency context. But my fear here, I, I get that argument, and, and Zeke Emanuel and his group that did the JAMA series is in a similar kind of argument. You might want to comment a little bit on that. But I think the fear is a huge portion of America has already declared that it's over with this pandemic and it's moving on. And then you have those who will leap for the magic moment option at the drop of a hat. When we're not reaching a magic moment, we're reaching a different phase of this of, of the COVID. So what's your thoughts on the risk side of this? Look, we, we need to have the capability to deal with COVID going forward. And of course, other threats that will come along and those are sort of intertwined. So clearly we need to have better surveillance capacity. We, you know, we've, we've had a disaster in the U.S. on data where there's all these sort of data fiefdoms and we still struggle to this day to get timely data out of CDC and other federal agencies. We need to have, you know, continued vaccination. The companies will hopefully keep the vaccines up to date. And we have this new tool, antivirals, and, you know, the scale up on that is too slow. And so we really need to have hugely scaled up capabilities around antivirals. And then we need to be ready, as you say, to test and quarantine in the future when there may or may not be some variant that we is less transmissible, it becomes feasible again. So we need those capabilities. I think what is the difference here is this emergency footing. We, we have so many health challenges that we have forgotten about that, that are out there as well. And we need to, you know, do a good job of managing these health problems. I'm very optimistic, for example, that the mRNA platform means that we'll have actually effective tools for dealing with flu in the future, whereas our vaccines in the past have been pretty bad. So there's going to be other things that we need to do, but we need to see COVID as something that's, that is not, it's there, it's going to stay around, but it's not a, you know, crisis emergency. It requires a robust health system and public health response. Next winter, we'll have a cycle in likelihood, but you don't see it being anywhere near the magnitude of what we're experiencing now. You're seeing it something that's not going to overwhelm health systems to the degree that it has today. Well, remember, people forget this, that in it's normal in the U.S. in a bad flu season for ICUs to be full. Right. It just never got in the media. Right. It was just something we had to manage on the hospital end. And there was overflow into the PACU and into the halls in a bad flu season. And it was just part and parcel because hospitals could not afford 
to build to max capacity requirements, right? So that's just part of the economics of hospitals. So yeah, we're, we will continue either from flu or the combination, and we may need to have greater capacity in the winter to handle uh, you know, the, the combination if, if that comes along, like a bad flu and, and you know, the, the upturn of, of COVID. So there's lots of things for health systems to do, but that does not mean that we will need the government to tell us you know, to stay at home. So lots of health system planning and response and even things down in the weeds and like, you know, how do you create the right financial incentives so hospitals are ready for, for sort of peak, peak demand in the future. Uh, will the COVID waves in the future be in the winter? Probably, but not necessarily, at least for a while, because it's you have two factors. You know, the winter will increase transmissibility for sure, but you know, a new variant that comes along and spreads rapidly, like Delta right. did, it can be off season. It sort of depends on the virus. Now, interestingly, some people think that over time, the variant, you know, there's sort of the timing of when there's more and more transmission in the southern hemisphere, and then it shifts to the north. We may end up with it, the, the new variants showing up in the winter. This has happened in in other cases, but we don't know that for sure. So, Chris, isn't all of this contingent on people in the United States and certainly around the world getting vaccinated, getting boosted? You know, don't you think that the areas that don't have the amount of people boosted, aren't they going to continue to suffer? So at the core question here in thinking about strategy is that the way we've been talking, particularly in this country, but some other countries as well, it is about the sort of epidemic of the unvaccinated, the idea a year ago that we would vaccinate our way out of the, of the, of the epidemic entirely, that we would get to some herd immunity and it would just sort of go away from vaccination. Well, that hasn't worked out. And we have also learned that probably immunity from what we can see in the, in the available data, like the SIREN study in the UK, from infection is as good as or better than the better vaccines like Moderna, and it may wane more slowly than the vaccine-derived immunity. So I think what we have to do is be thinking about this. Now, obviously, you want to get vaccinated because you take a 1% chance of dying with the old variants like Delta if, if you aren't. If you want to get immunity, that's a pretty risky way to go about getting it. But having said that, now we really need to be thinking about the issue around the unvaccinated and never infected. That's the the super high risk group. It is a vanishingly small group by the time Omicron is over, right? Because the very same people who don't choose to get vaccinated are usually not very careful. They don't wear a mask. They have more social interaction, very likely to get infected. Same in other countries. So part of the reason that over time, probably COVID isn't as big a challenge is that that high risk category, the unvaccinated, never infected gets smaller. Now, immunity wanes in both cases, right? The vaccination. And so there may be a need for boosters. You know, people may get multiple rounds of, of COVID infection. But again, you're, the basic idea is that for severe disease and death, if you've had some exposure in the past through vaccination or infection, your risk of severe outcomes goes, goes substantially down. And thus, over time, we should fare better. So, so in your view, Omicron is really, in a way, helping us get through this. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I mean, it, if you look at places that were in, in the throes of a Delta surge, a bunch of countries in Europe, some of the northeastern states in the U.S., Omicron has replaced Delta. And in fact, deaths are going down in those places, not up. And so, 
you know, there's lots of mess in the data because we have because Omicron's so common now. There's all these incidental admissions and deaths where you went for a heart attack and you get counted as Omicron because you you happen to also have an asymptomatic or infection. But taking that away, even in some places in Europe, even when you count the incidentals, place take Greece. You know, you have this huge Omicron wave come in, it replaces Delta, and and deaths start to come down. So, yes, even though so many people have gotten infected, it's been so disruptive on schools and other businesses because of people testing positive. If you were in the throes of a winter Delta surge, you're probably in a better state. People across the country are exhausted by this. And the the level of politicization certainly hasn't subsided. Don't you worry that this kind of argument, you know, gives people license to do nothing? Look, I, I think especially in this era where things are so politicized, we really have to stick to the truth. And we're trying to make sense of all the data. And I, uh, the last thing we want to do at IHME is like spin the data for because it fits one group's narrative or another group's narrative. We have been champions throughout the pandemic, for example, for non-pharmaceutical interventions, mask use. And now that does not seem to, at least in this phase of Omicron, to have huge value. And we want to follow where the analysis goes. I think that the, the, the counterfactual here, that we should keep people in a perpetual state of crisis, is just not going to work. I think what Andrew's getting at is, Yes, all of that makes sense and is rational and grounded in truth. Will that argument be taken up by those who are determined to delegitimize vaccines and masking and, and mandates and social distancing who, see, who have now made that part of a broader political movement, seize upon your work and wave it around in arguing for something you're not arguing for, but something that they are arguing? And do you exactly see any evidence I mean. of that? you see any evidence of that? Not yet. The message is not yet to be picked up by the people who are... You have not been invited to appear on Tucker Carlson yet. I have not received an invite from Tucker yet. Or Joe Rogan. Or Joe right. Rogan, no. But look, I, I think it's... Uh, I think part of the... What, what's the story of, of COVID being? In the story of COVID was massive under-response at the beginning of the epidemic to the risk it posed, January 2020, February 2020. Massive under-response when the Delta wave is sweeping through India and you know it's going to come, but CDC's like scaling down their COVID response because they're not looking outside the country. And, you know, now we have a wave that's much less threatening and uh, we're sort of almost over-responding. And so it, the, the challenge for us for this pandemic, for, for this disease, and for future pandemics is getting the response right, you know, the appropriate response. And I think part of the reason you've had both of those swings is that people are, are trying to do the second guessing game. Like, you know, what if somebody misinterprets or does this, then I shouldn't say what's actually happening. And I think that's a slippery slope. I really do. I yeah. think we've got to stick to the science and say, here's the data. Here's what it looks like. Yes, there's some interpretation in here. Yes, there's always going to be risk in the future. But we should try to get our response level right. I want to come back to China for a moment here because because of its zero COVID approach, it, it is in another level of vulnerability than the rest of the world. Perhaps you can lump together New Zealand and Australia and 
and a few other places, but 1.4 billion people in China, almost zero infection-derived immunity, 86% or whatever the number is, fully vaccinated with two doses of either Sinovac or Sinopharm, vaccines that we know are very ineffectual at providing real protection against Omicron, so that it gives you leaves you with very little confidence that as Omicron, if it gets unleashed and tears through China, which many people, yourself included, are saying this has an intensity and velocity unlike anything else, and it's been it's proven its ability to escape immune protections and escape lockdown and other measures. So there's a real contest here. These brutal and severe lockdowns combined with mass testing and, and all of the other measures, will they be beaten by Omicron or not? And if they are beaten, you've got an enormous health crisis on your hands in terms of the lack of protection for that population and the threat that you could have your health system overwhelmed in a 15 or 20 day period. Can you say a little bit about that? Look, I, I think the, uh, it's a, in my mind, it's a question of not if, but when, right? How long will the government in China pursue the zero COVID strategy with all the consequences uh, economically, socially uh, on the country? And at what point will they either just be forced because it, it will get out? You know, look at New Zealand. Uh, it got out through, you know, very strict managed isolation at the border, uh, still gets out. It's super hard to, to imagine that they will keep this away. I think in the pure prognosticating game, you might expect them to try really hard through the Olympics to keep it out and then perhaps less hard after that. But when and if it when it does get out, it will create enormous pressure on the health system. It's hard to imagine it won't for exactly what you said, Steve, which is there the population level of immunity is comparatively low compared to everybody else. It's either had a better vaccine and or you know like multiple rounds of exposure to to COVID. The Chinese need antivirals and they need mRNA vaccines as a third dose. They need they need those tools on an urgent basis and they don't have them. There's not a very clear path out for them and not a quick and easy path out for them. Say a bit about how the what's the Chinese strategy going to look like and are, and are they likely to turn to external partners to help them? You know, I mean, a better vaccine would be great. And if there's any country on earth that could scale up vaccination uh, very quickly, it's it's certainly China. Could that happen fast enough to beat off Omicron? I'm, I'm, I doubt it, right? Uh, the negotiations, getting the access, shipping the vaccine. So the odds of, you know, like mRNA vaccines being the way out, not great. The antivirals, you know, you now have this class of, of tool that has 90% reduction in the death rate. You just need a lot of it. And, you know, you've got Pfizer saying they're going to deliver, you know, 20 million doses to the U.S. by the end of the year. We're, we're talking a lot of people that would need the antivirals. So if there's a way to scale production in a timely way, that would be another strategy, a way out. But unfortunately, the speed of this is, is so great that it's hard to imagine that working in time unless they you know, pursue a super aggressive lockdown strategy and at, and at the same time rush to negotiate 
some solution around on vaccines or antivirals. Even then, I imagine the numbers are against them. We're going to hit the 1 million mark here in America, May 1, according to your latest forecast. 1 million lives lost in America, recorded loss. The numbers are probably much higher than that. Do you think that's going to register in any different fashion within America at the leadership level, at the popular level at all? What do you think? I don't know, Steve. I think that if we're right and the numbers really get to a low level in March and a very low level in April, I think we will see an almost post-war celebration in the population. It may be inappropriate in the sense that people will equate such low numbers to COVID being gone as opposed to the pandemic being gone. But I think it's just such a pent-up you know, anger about the whole thing for two years that we will see sort of like post-World War II, post-World War I type of mindset. So I think hitting that number in May will, will be a historical note only. Andrew, did you have any further questions or thoughts on this before we turn to antimicrobial resistance? Yeah, I do. Thanks, Steve. Chris, I hate to be, you know, Danny Downer here, but it seems like every time we here in the United States ease up because we, we are undoubtedly all so exhausted from this. Anytime we ease up and we become less vigilant, we start going out again, we start not wearing masks and all the, you know, all the things that we do to go back to our normal life. There's some new surge, whether it's Omicron, Delta, whatever it is that pops up. If what you're saying is going to happen this spring, isn't that a recipe for disaster going into the summer when everybody's going to be, you know, really celebrating? Again, I think it's it's back to the fundamentals here. Uh, so I don't think so. I think we'll be okay. I think even certainly if it's just Omicron, it's not an issue. So it's really about is it a recipe for disaster when a new variant comes along that is as transmissible or slightly more than Omicron or has more immune escape and therefore can can get to people that have some immunity now uh, and is more severe. And I think the bottom line there is that the two factors again, which is higher levels of immunity because of continued progress in vaccination boosters and having been tons of people being infected with Omicron on top of vaccination or not. And that we will progressively scale up, and this is where the government can actually do something, is really try to scale up the quantity and access to antivirals so that if and when you do have the next go, if we drop the death rate by 90%, then COVID really becomes way less of a worry than flu. So, you know, there's some very clear actions for government there on scaling up or helping facilitate the scale up of antivirals. And I just don't see that we're, we're going to be at particular risk there. Now, the, the, the interesting question from a social cultural point of view is when you go to the winter and, you know, there's the winter increased transmissibility and there's some variants that are circulating, will people who are older or at risk choose to uh, wear a mask and socially distance? We now know those work incredibly well in many cases, Less well for Omicron, but still beneficial. And so that's also something available for people to protect themselves. And, and I think we'll see some fraction of the population change their winter behavior. Before we run out of time, I really want to ask you to speak a bit for a few minutes 
about this uh, newly published work that you've led on the global burden of an uh, bacterial antimicrobial resistance. It's an analysis of a number of papers issued last week. You were the lead on this, focused on the data in 2019. Some pretty striking findings. Maybe you could just tell us, like, what does, what does this mean and what did this reveal? Yeah, I mean, this was a long-running project. This is five years in the making, you know, funded to a large extent by the, the UK government and then the Wellcome Trust and, and the, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Uh, big team involved here at, at the Institute as well as at the University of Oxford. We tried to pull all the data that covers a, a large number of bacterial pathogens, look at resistance, and then look at what's your risk of dying if you have a resistant bacteria versus not and do that for a range of clinical syndromes, for pneumonia, for bloodstream infections, urinary tract infections, et cetera, et cetera. So very comprehensive, first of its kind. And what we end up finding is, to actually much to my surprise, is one and a quarter million deaths attributable right. to resistance. And then the other big surprise is that uh, in the past, I think a lot of people thought that you had to earn your way in the sense of rising GDP into drug resistance being a problem. Uh, it was thought to be a problem only for high-income countries. But in reality, it's turned out to that it's everywhere. And in fact, the highest burden is actually in sub-Saharan Africa. And there, to make, to, to make that all compute, is the fraction of infections that are resistant in sub-Saharan Africa is lower than in Europe or the U.S., but there's so many more of those pneumonias and bloodstream infections in, in sub-Saharan Africa that you end up with a larger burden from AMR. So it's become truly a global problem. There, you know, there's some really interesting things that are buried in that paper as well, not just the sort of headline numbers. For example, there's a bunch of bacterial pathogens that are huge global causes of death. Forget about the resistance part, just you know, things that most people have never heard of, Acinetobacter or Klebsiella, E. coli, most people have heard of E. coli, but uh, these are not things that the global health community talk about all the time, but they turn out to be really big causes of death, and then a substantial fraction of those deaths are also linked to resistance of those bacteria. These are the six pathogens that you identify. And say a bit about the five million deaths that were closely associated with bacterial AMR. What does that what does that mean exactly? Because one and a quarter million is a big number. Five million is even bigger. Yeah, and and when we you know we, we come at this problem of quantifying AMR from the sort of global burden of disease perspective, right? So we have some standard rules and ways of doing things and defining things. And one of the first things that we noticed in the AMR field is that most studies in the past had simply counted, you know, for Europe or for a country, whether you died with a drug-resistant infection. And that's the bigger number, our number of almost 5 million deaths where the person died with a drug-resistant infection. But to say that you died because the pathogen was drug-resistant we're not sure because sometimes having a drug-resistant pathogen versus a drug-sensitive pathogen, if you're in a place where you don't get much in the way of antibiotics, doesn't really make much of a difference. You still end up dying. So we calculate two counterfactuals. One is, you know, did you die with 
a drug-resistant infection. That's the bigger number. And then we have the attributable deaths, where we treat yeah. drug resistance like a risk factor. And we yeah. looked at all the studies that said, how much higher is your risk of death if you happen to have a resistant pathogen versus a sensitive pathogen? I mean, I'm really struck by this data showing South Asia and Africa being the dominant populations. What does this do in terms of changing thinking and behavior of the global health community? You know, I think what we have to recognize is that these bacterial pathogens are way bigger. They're, you know, each of the the big ones are way bigger than malaria, for example, and they're really commensurate with TB as, as, as killers. And we just haven't paid attention to them. So there's that part. Then on the resistance part, there's a lot around the discovery pipeline, you know, how do we get a more robust right. discovery pipeline so that we continue to have antibiotics that work for these pathogens? And then there's a lot which is which is tricky on the appropriate use part. How do we make sure we right. don't use broad spectrum, highly effective antibiotics when you don't need them? And then you know, encourage the development of resistance. And then there's a whole ish set of issues around use in animals of uh, antibiotics and how much that's bleeding into humans. We don't right. really know, but it's certainly credible that that's a major risk factor for resistance in, in the population. Yeah. Chris, your study proposes five main interventions to address this global burden of AMR. Can you tell us about that? I can. I think you know, it, it, it is about better surveillance globally. It's about uh, so that we know and can track what's going on. It's about improved discovery. It is the national action plans and you know, coming up with appropriate use guidelines so that you don't use antibiotics inappropriately, but give, it, give them to people who need them. And then it's also about reducing the risk of infection through vaccination, through water and sanitation interventions, through you know reducing indoor and outdoor air pollution and a variety of sort of risk reduction so there's fewer infections and therefore fewer drug resistant infections now your data was collected before covid arrived and then there's been this big discussion around has covid inspired overprescription overprescribing of antibiotics i realize that your your data is on to 2019 but there's been a lot of commentary and thinking about what has been the impact during COVID? What, what can you say about that? Very interesting. I mean, logically, you would think it has increased the use of antibiotics. There are some small studies that, that back that claim up. It's less clear, though. We've looked at U.S. claims data, for example, and we have not seen, at least in the U.S., to the extent you can use claims data to, to really do this accurately, but we haven't seen a dramatic use of, of broad-spectrum antibiotics. So I think it, the, the jury's out on that. It, it makes sense, probably will turn out to be true. We just haven't gotten the data yet. Thanks so much. Why don't we close? You've, you've already answered, in a way, our, close, our normal closing question, which is what gives you hope and optimism? The, your entire piece in The Lancet was answering that question. Let's think a little bit more beyond what, what's likely to happen in the spring and into the summer. Give us a little bit more of a trajectory of what you think the, an optimistic scenario looks like over the long haul, over the next five years. Optimistic scenario says that the extraordinary global policy focus on health during COVID and on health systems will have some spillover benefits for other global health problems. 
for example, the mRNA vaccine platform being deployed for flu and perhaps other, you know, um, vaccine development, that the understanding actually that hospitals are not evil and, you know, antithetical to improved health, but actually play a pretty useful function when people are very sick. And therefore, we need, you know, just the understanding that shortages of oxygen in low and middle income countries were, were a real issue will give us, I think, more focus on you know, the nuts and bolts of health systems, of, of, of health workers and hospitals and, their, and, and the actual infrastructure and capabilities in different places. So I'm hoping that we'll see spillover benefits from that enhanced understanding of the importance of health systems, as well as maybe uh, spillover benefits on, you know, way better, more real-time surveillance so that it's no longer acceptable for the government to put out data two or three years old that, that you know, there's this enormous utility for real-time data. So I'm pretty optimistic on most fronts. The one thing that I think will be the lasting, less optimistic effect of the pandemic is the global hit to education. And I think that, you know, we're only starting to understand just how big that is in many parts of the world. And whether we bounce back from that, uh, for that cohort, I don't know. Uh, I think that's, that in, in my mind is, is something that we really need to pay attention to, that we may, you know, for that cohort, have see a, a, a one, two, or even more year hit to human capital, and that may have, you know, a generational effect. Chris, thanks so much for the, all your time today. This has been fascinating. And I'm glad we were able to catch you soon after your piece appeared in The Lancet and to have this conversation here today. Uh, you've been very generous to us. I think this is your third appearance with us on Coronavirus Crisis Update. You've, you're, we're in our 117th episode here today. So we're looking forward to bringing you on for the fourth somewhere in the, in the second quarter of the year. We'll, we'll be back in touch. Okay. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Chris. Coronavirus Crisis Update is produced by Liz Pulver. You can find our full catalog of podcasts, including Pandemic Planet and AIDS Existential Moment, on our homepage at csis.org slash podcasts.